0: Welcome to Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. It's important for me in in documenting historical true crime stories to try and encompass the entire American experience. Always of interest to me, turn-of-the-century Chinese tongs. On a stop in San Francisco last year, I walked through Chinatown, retracing the steps of Little Pete, a tong boss who would eventually be gunned down in a barber's chair in 1897. The chainmail armor vest he wore wasn't effective because Chinese gunmen caught him with a hot towel covering his face and one of them walked up with a revolver and simply shoved it down the back of his neck inside the coat of mail and pulled the trigger five times. I looked far and wide for a book on the Tong Wars and I was fortunate to find one. It doesn't take place in San Francisco, but in New York's Chinatown instead. An absolutely fascinating read, by the way. Joining me today is Scott Seligman, author of many scholarly and business books. He's lived in Taiwan, Hong Kong, in China, uh, a lifelong student of Chinese culture, language, and history. His book is called Tong Wars, The Untold Story of Vice, Money, and Murder in New York's Chinatown. It's a pleasure getting the chance to talk to you. My pleasure. So what motivated you to write about the gang history of New York's Chinatown?
1: Well, this is actually the third book that I've written on the subject of um, early, the early Chinese-American experience. And the first two were about people that I think you could, um, re- you could legitimately refer to as Chinese-American heroes. This time, I wanted to look at some people who were not always so savory, But, you know, all are part of the tapestry of Chinese-American experience, and I think all, therefore, subject to uh, intellectual inquiry. Um, but what had happened was that in the last two books, I'd really come across many references to the Chinatown Tongs and the Tong Wars. And styling myself as something an ex- of an expert on the Chinese-American experience, I realized I knew very little about these organizations. Uh, they were secret societies that didn't exactly publicize their activities. But really, it was my following my own nose and my own intellectual curiosity that got me into this.
0: We'll be hearing the word Tong a lot today. What is a Tong? First
1: of all, the word in Chinese uh, has no negative connotation at all. Uh, it simply means a hall or an assembly, or um, maybe uh, speaking a little bit more broadly, an organization. And it did not only was not only used for secret societies, but in the context of the book, just for simplicity's sake, when I was referring to a tong, I was talking about one of the secret societies. So, um, in, in the case of uh, this particular book, writing written about New York and not about any of the not about the West Coast tongs. Uh, There were essentially two tongs that were responsible for most of the shooting uh, in New York uh, from the turn of the century until about uh, the 1930s.
0: It's interesting you chose New York's Chinatown as the focus of your book. But, of course, uh, I think most people associate the early history of the Chinese in America with the railroads in the West. What motivated you to pick New York when there's so much Chinese-American history across the country to draw upon?
1: That's a good question. Uh, first of all, let me explain that um, the the uh, New York Chinatown and the Chinatowns in the East and the Midwest generally really owe their existence to the end of the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, which was in the 1860s. The, the, those Chinatowns, Chicago, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Pittsburgh, they all really came into being in the 1870s after the railroad was done. Because the Chinese in the West were um, out, a lot of them were out of work. They were willing to compete with uh, white laborers for lower wages, which got them in a lot of trouble. And there was a lot of violence against the Chinese uh, in, in that period. Some of them went back to China, but others decided to come East. So <clears throat> in a real sense, New York Chinatown kind of owes its existence to that exact um, period in history in the West. Um, I think I was more interested in New York history because um, I had written about it before. A previous book that I wrote, a book called The First Chinese American, was the bio- biography of a man named Wang Qingfu, who was a um, real true Chinese American activist and a real hero. And he spent a good chunk of his time in New York. And sure enough, as I did the research on the Tong Wars, I kept coming, coming, uh, coming upon people that I knew from the previous books. And also, I'm from the East. I'm, a, I'm a, uh, a native of Newark, New Jersey, just over the, uh, across the river from New York City. So it was, um, I was always attracted to the New York Chinatown experience.
0: Let's talk about the beginning of Chinatown in the 1870s. Uh, where is it in New York City? How was it established, and who were the first residents? Yeah,
1: well, what's interesting is that um, Chinatown is where it has always been, essentially, in New York City. By the 1870s, it was an, a, an early settler, uh, a, a guy by the name of Wu Key, who set up a store on Mott Street. Um, Mott Street was a, a kind of a, it had been a nice neighborhood at one point in its history, but it had really fallen on hard times. And I think Wilkie was attracted there because the rents were cheap. And he set up a store, and that really became the nucleus of Chinatown. And, um, beginning in the, since the 1870s, and now here we are in the 19 teens, or 20 teens, excuse me, it has been the, the, the epicenter of Chinatown. Mott Street, Pell Street, um, the Bowery on the bottom, kind of a triangular area that's about a little bit uh, about the size of an acre, which has really been the center of uh, of the Chinese existence in, in in New York. Now it doesn't mean that there aren't Chinese elsewhere, and in fact, in modern day, I think you probably have a, have more Chinese in Queens than you do there. But the major Chinese organizations have never really moved from there. That's uh, that, the that that's the center of, of gravity.
0: What were some of the views by New Yorkers? on the Chinese coming into the city?
1: Well, you know, the Chinese were singled out um, for special treatment um, by the federal government, first of all, in the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was 1882. Lasted, actually, until, unbelievably, until 1943. So um, they were always uh, it's something in, a, in something of a class by themselves. By the time they got East, they weren't subject to all of the same prejudices that the Chinese were in the West. But uh it didn't take the newspapers too long to come uh to, to to report on those as well. Chinese were really seen as guests in somebody else's country. They were never really seen as American. They couldn't become American the same way a second generation Italian or Irish immigrant could. Uh first of all because legally they were barred from citizenship by the exclusion act, because they looked different, because they tended to congregate together, and because they really a lot of them didn't really ever learn English. So, uh, they really were very much in a, in a, in a, in a class by themselves. In the West, the stereotypes were, I mean, you name it, they were, they were, they were considered to be clannish and dirty and, and disease-ridden. Uh, they were told, they were talk- they, they were said to eat rats and other disgusting things. And they, they, people just threw the book at them as far as, um, racial epithets were concerned. People in the East were a little bit um, more welcoming of them, I suppose you could say, uh, or a little bit less unwelcoming of them There's probably a better way to say it, because they didn't have quite the background. And they also, <clears throat> the Chinese in New York were by and large not competing for jobs um, with white males, which was what got them in trouble in the, in the
0: West. There's a little more assimilation by the Chinese in New York, isn't there? The Chinese were able to start businesses like laundries, which didn't really infringe on white society, and it didn't really create any overt hostility either.
1: Um, It actually did infringe on white society, just not white males. At one point, New York um, was considering a a bill aimed at the Chinese that was going to require that all laundry tickets be written in English and had nothing to do with inaccuracy or people not getting their clothes back from the Chinese laundries, but it was really a way to protect some of the white laundry women um, from uh, incursion by the Chinese into an industry that they had more or less occupied before the Chinese showed up. So it wasn't like there was no friction, um, but uh, it, it was they had more breathing room, let's say it that way, uh, than the Chinese in the West did. So it was a little bit easier for them. But I wouldn't go so far as to use the term assimilation, because I don't think too many of them assimilated until maybe toward, toward the end of the narrative. See, what, what happened was the, 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 the Chinese population changed, in a way, in New York, between the beginning of these Tong Wars, which was essentially the 1890s and the 1930s, partly as a consequence of the Exclusion Act. Um, more and more Chinese in the United States, or excuse me, a higher percentage of Chinese in the United States, were American-born by the 1930s. And also, um, by, the, by the end, by the 1930s, most of the Chinese in New York no longer lived in the Chinatown area. They followed the restaurants and they followed the, um, the laundries up into the boroughs and across the river into New Jersey. So uh, Chinatown wasn't quite the powder keg that it had once been. And that's actually part of why the wars ended.
0: So a man named Tom Lee arrives in Chinatown. Who was he and what were his goals?
1: Uh, Tom Lee was born in China. Um, He emigrated to San Francisco as a teenager, worked as a labor contractor, picked up serviceable English while he was there, and then made his way into the Midwest. Um, He arrived in New York as a direct result of um, an inquiry um, that the New York Chinese, of whom there weren't very many, but it was already a sort of a nascent colony. They lodged an inquiry in San Francisco with with an organization called the Six Companies, which was the Um, essentially the governing body of San Francisco Chinatown, sort of sat at the apex of Chinese society in the United States. And they asked for someone to come out and run things. So when Tom Lee arrived in 1878-79, he was, on day one, the undisputed boss of Chinatown. He had four goals, essentially. One was to um, uh, essentially oversee Chinatown and, and keep order there. The second one was to build bridges to the white establishment. The third was to marry and have a family, and the fourth was to get very rich. And Tom Lee saw no conflict in pursuing all four of those goals at the same time. And in particular, that second one, building bridges to the white establishment, is where Tammany Hall comes in, because it was, didn't take him very long to figure out that all roads led to Tammany Hall. So Tom Lee um, uh, ingratiated himself with some of the local aldermen, some of the figures in Tammany Hall, and he. Um, was rewarded for his efforts and uh, for something he no, no doubt paid for. He was appointed a deputy sheriff of New York County. He was the first Chinese to hold any office, elective or appointed, in New York's history. And he used it to great effect. That's really how Tom Lee emerged as a powerful person in, uh, in Chinatown.
0: You give a great physical description of Tom Lee in your book. Can you talk about that? Um, how did he dress? What did he look like?
1: Well, he was a, a natty dresser. Um, he wore Western clothing, and in the early years, he still had his hair queue, which was the long braid of hair that you know, that you see um, Chinese in the late Qing Dynasty uh, in America still wore. But he tucked it under his derby hat, so you couldn't see very much of it. He was a he was a um, uh, not a particularly tall man, definitely not a not a large man. In fact, um, the description of his wife um, he he married a, a woman in Philadelphia of uh, German extraction, and uh, she was more or less twice his size. But he was a scrappy guy, and, um, and he dressed pretty well. Uh, the description of him says that when he got his um, his badge, his deputy sheriff badge, he wore it on his suspenders so everybody knew he was a deputy sheriff.
0: So Tom Lee was a member of the On Leong Tong, but early on, another gang called the Hip Sings attempted to move in and carve out a piece of Chinatown. And it was led by a really vicious man by the name of Mock Duck. Can you talk about the beginnings of this violent rivalry between the An Leong's and the Hip Sings?
1: Right. Um, well, first of all, Tom Lee wasn't just a member of the An Leong's. He really founded the An Leong Tom. And um, what, what, uh, you have to go back and realize that the, the Chinese in New York were hardworking. They worked six days a week. But on evenings and on Sundays, they liked uh, they they had a few diversions that they liked to enjoy. The principal one was gambling. To a lesser extent, there was also opium and prostitution. But gambling was really what, what got all this started. And because it was illegal, the police would close down Chinese gambling holes, just like they would close down gambling holes elsewhere in New York uh, if they found them. So um, rather than continuing to get these things closed down, Tom Lee had an idea that he could bring together the bosses of these gambling houses, and he basically said, I'm going to tax you. I'm going to get money from you per table per week. And I'm going to use that money for several reasons, several, several purposes. One is to pay off the aldermen and the police so that they won't molest you and they won't shut you down. But I'm going to do some good things for Chinatown as well. I will uh, uh, donate some of the money to the Chinese hospital, some of the money to the CCBA, the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, which was the, sort of the local government of Chinatown. And, of course, I'm going to put some of it in my own pocket, in the pocket of my cronies. So this gambler's union was what became the Amiens Tong. It was not only a brilliant idea, it was very lucrative. And because nature abhors, or at least capitalism, I suppose, abhors a vacuum, the fact that so much money was being made here is what attracted a second organization to try to horn in on the Amiens territory. This was a group called the Hip Sing Tong, and they were not originally of New York. They were a West Coast organization that was making inroads um, in the cities of the Midwest and the East in the late 1880s, early 1890s. And basically, the Hipsings came in, and they really wanted a piece of the action. Uh, and they fought for it. They would clash with the Anlians. But because the Anlians in these early days were essentially in bed with the police, the Hipsings more or less got the worst of the bargain. Every time they there was a clash, they would get beaten up or they would get arrested. There were even instances where they would clash with the Allianz and the police would arrest only the hipzings because the Allianz were their buddies. So they, uh, they got beaten up for a while, and then they got smart. And they realized that if, if Tom Lee and the Allianz power came from Tammany Hall, that all they really needed to do was figure out who was against Tammany Hall and align with them. And the mid-1890s provided a very serviceable person for that. It was the Reverend Par- Charles Parkhurst, who was um, a, um, a preacher of New England stock, who was uh, in Manhattan, and who essentially was an enemy of vice. He was against all vice uh, forms of vice in, in New York City, and was a, was a vicious critic of Tammany Hall. And uh, Parkhurst used a bully pulpit, his bully pulpit, in the, not only in his church, but also an organization called the Society for the Prevention of Crime, which later became known as the Parkhurst Society, because his imprimatur was so strong, and the Hipstings found their way to the Reverend Parkhurst and basically said, we share your goals of ridding Chinatown of vice and smashing this unholy alliance between Tom Lee and Tammany Hall. And, um, it was a, it was a durable and successful ruse that, uh, worked very much to the Hipsings' advantage. Um, because they could simply go to the Parkhursts, report the presence of gambling halls. Parkhurst would then goad the police into closing them down. And, um, thus reflecting badly on the Anliang Tong and its ability to protect the gamblers. So, uh, that's really what set off the First Tong War. And it was, it was fairly bloody. It lasted for about six years. And, um, and when it was over, the Hip Sings had managed to take, claim some territory for themselves. After the First Tong War was over, uh, the Anliangs controlled basically Mott Street. The Hip Sings controlled Pell Street. And Doyer Street, that's, that narrow alley that snakes in between, was kind of no man's land, and, uh, and everybody could go there. And that's really, the, uh, that, that's really how it all began.
0: So Teddy Roosevelt, before he was ever a rough rider or a president, was the police commissioner of New York City and declared a war on vice. How did this war on vice affect the Chinese Tongs?
1: Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a uh, police commissioner for a couple of years in the 1890s, and he actually was credited with doing a lot for the police department, a lot to professionalize the police, because um, promotions up until that point were were purchased in the police department. So were appointments. And Teddy uh, Roosevelt had come off of the Civil Service Commission, and he really wanted to use sort of a merit-based procedure in order to fill jobs uh, in, the, in the police department. He also... Um, he instituted a lot of other reforms he put in call boxes and things like that uh where he came into contact with the Chinatown groups there was really only one good anecdote about it the hip sings once he was appointed they approached him and they told him that if he would work with them they could help him shut down the gambling in um, in Chinatown essentially the same argument that they that they gave to um, to the reverend parkers um, but they they went a little bit too far they, in the same conversation they they also threatened him they basically said that if you don't work with us, we're going to the Parkhurst and we're going to embarrass you. Well, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't somebody that you threatened. He didn't take threats particularly well. He threw them out, and that was kind of the end of, of, um, of any work that they were going to be able to do with Teddy Roosevelt. And then within a couple of years, he was gone. He later went on to become, I, think, I believe he was um, governor of New York before he was president of the United States. That was, I think, his next job. He ran for governor.
0: So there were four major Tong Wars in New York in the first half of the 20th century. You've already talked a little bit about the first. I'd like to ask you about a couple of specific incidents within that war. Could you talk about the Chinese Theater Massacre in
1: 1905? Yes. Uh, well, uh, the Chinese Theater uh, was also called the Chinese Opera House. It was on Doyer Street. And as such, it was sort of neutral territory. Nothing bad had ever happened in the Chinese Theater. And, uh, one night, um, there was a Chinese play going on, and, um, some hip sings, uh, had infiltrated with guns, uh, they were sitting at the be- in the front and in the back of the auditorium, and at a particularly dramatic point in the play, somebody set off firecrackers, um, set the actors, um, scurrying, and the hip sing gunmen stood up and fired into the crowd. And at first it looked like a random shooting, but it was, there not, was nothing random about it. The only people who died were Onlions. And um, uh, and it was, it, it was, it really was a watershed. Up until that particular battle, you could write off some of the, 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 the shootings in Chinatown to individual grudges, or at least one-off, one-off kinds of incidents. But this was the first gang-style shooting that Chinatown saw. And of course, New York understood what gang shootings were about because they were were other gangs from other ethnic groups. Um, but this really was a watershed. After this, it really was a gang war.
0: And the following year the Hipsings again attack the On Liangs in the Pell Street Chinese New Year ambush. Is that correct?
1: Right. And it, it occurs to me, I haven't told you about Mock Doug, you asked about him earlier. Um Mock Doug was, by the way, was tried. Um, for his role in the um, in the the Chinese Theater massacre, but they really couldn't get him pin him on anything pin anything on him because he wasn't there when it happened. He was a forever planning executions and then not being around when they when they happened. Maka, uh was a, was uh, also an import from the West Coast. He was born in San Francisco. He was a very young man, and in fact, very young to lead a Chinese organization. Uh, the, the newspapers described him as almost feminine, almost effeminate. But he was brutal and ruthless, and, uh, and if there were, if there was a particular figure in Chinatown that everybody was scared of, it was probably mocked up. Now, the Hell Street, uh, uh massacre, the Chinese New Year massacre, that was, um, that was unfortunate. There was a, the, the two tongs had actually brokered a truce, and it was to take effect on Chinese New Year's Day. But rather than sort of wind down to it, the Hip Sing saw it as a deadline. And uh, therefore, they figured that the only way they were going to get at the Anlians was going to be before the Chinese New Year began. So the massacre was on Chinese New Year's Eve. And it was a few Anlians that um, showed up on Pell Street, which wasn't their territory, to pay a New Year's call on somebody. And on their way out of the building, there were hip um uh, hiding in the alleyways, uh, and they shot them, and several Anlians died, including uh, Tom Lee's right-hand man. Um, no, he didn't die, he was
0: injured. So this conflict between these gangs was not only about money but it was about face as well wasn't it
1: yes it was that, see uh, the, the wars began for different reasons the first one broke out over gambling the second tong war which lasted for about a year 19, 1909 1910 that was about actually the ownership and i use the word in quotes of a woman the third tong war was about opium it broke out over, over opium and the fourth was uh, was from a defection from one tong to the other so they had different origins but what wound up prolonging them was this concept of face, and in the context of the Tong Wars, what face really meant was not absorbing the last blow without fighting back. So it was a tit for tat kind of arrangement, and it was it was very very difficult for one Tong to say, "All right, they got us now, let's stop and and and, uh, and broker a truce." So it always took outsiders to come in and try to help them broker a truce. The negotiations were usually pretty torturous but by the time they were over, they were not really about what they had started out being about. They really ultimately all morphed into this, this problem of face and not being able to stop without losing it. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
0: You quote some of the, the colorful language used by New York reporters when writing about this gangland warfare and the back and forth between the Hip Sings and the An Leongs. These reporters really seem to relish the Chinese stereotypes of the day in reporting on these gang conflicts, don't they?
1: Uh, well, that's right. And, uh, you know, that actually points to one of the problems in doing the research for the book, which is, you know, uh, what sources do you believe? We, um, the, 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 the unfortunate reality is that the early residents of Chinatown left very few written records behind of, of, in any language. I found a couple of, a few memoirs, a couple in, one in Chinese, a couple in English. But by and large, these folks didn't get to speak for themselves as I was doing the research. Um, but New York had about a dozen, uh, daily English language newspapers at the turn of the century. And they covered the d- events in Chinatown in surprising detail. Now, you had, unfortunately, this was, uh, it, 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 that was the good news. The bad news was they were the work of white journalists, none of whom spoke Chinese all of whom were, were dependent on Chinese sources for their information and couldn't always tell when they were getting played by one faction or another, or their coverage was tinged by racism or simply lack of knowledge of Chinese culture. So I had to really sift through the coverage, throw out the things that I really didn't believe, and, um, and, and, then, and, and, and figure out what was reliable about them. Fortunately, the other set of records that I had was useful here. Uh, the government kept a lot of records on the Chinese, Um, In addition to the immigration records and the census records and vital records of when people married and died and that sort of thing, there were court records, which were wonderful, because sometimes you've got verbatim um, dialogue uh, from the records of what was discussed in court when the Chinese um, were were brought before judges. But also there's a special group of records uh, called the Chinese Exclusion Files that exist in the National Archives. No other group has this record, these kinds of records, and they were, of course, a consequence of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And what it meant was, essentially, if a Chinese who was living legally in the United States decided he wanted to go back to China for a visit, for example, he would usually apply for a pre-investigation of status, which essentially was his way of asking the government, if I leave, will you let me back? And um, the federal government's approach to that was to sit the person down for a very, very detailed interview. Lots of personal uh, questions were asked um, about their family members, the names of their brothers and sisters and their aunts and uncles, the villages they came from in China, the businesses they had in the United States, whether grandma had bound feet or had natural feet, where the well was located, lots of really detailed and very intrusive questions. The government's purpose was to make sure that if the person showed up in San Francisco a year later coming back in, that he could answer the questions the same way and therefore was not an imposter. But these records that were collected for fairly nefarious purposes back then are historical and genealogical gold today. And so I could read about somebody in the newspaper, and if I was fortunate, there was a Chinese exclusion file on the person, and I could compare the facts in the article and make judgments as to how accurate it was. These records really helped me give a third dimension to some of the people that I was writing about.
0: I'd like to ask you about the Second Tong War and Bo Kong. You spoke of her briefly earlier, but could you expand on that story? Could you talk about how she found herself as the catalyst in a gangland feud? Yes,
1: that was actually the only one of the four wars where the Anleans faced a different enemy from the Uh, Bo Bokum was imported to San Francisco from China, essentially to be a concubine, for a man who was a member of an organization called the Four Brothers Society. Now, that was not a Tong in the sense of being a secret society. The Four Brothers Society was a family association. It actually was an association of four numerically small families that banded together. And they didn't normally engage in underworld activities. But uh, this woman, Bokum, was um, uh, affianced, if you want to call it that way, to a member of the Four, four Brothers Society. Uh, but she was essentially brought in to be a slave, and I suspect also a prostitute. And at one point, she was um, she escaped. And she found uh, refuge in um, a, uh, a Christian mission in San Francisco. They took her in, taught her a skill. She stayed with them for a while. And then she fell in love with another Chinese man who was a laundryman. And the mission approved of him. They thought he was a good man. So they allowed them to get married. And he brought her to New York. And the first thing he did when he, when he got to New York was he joined the Anliang Tong, which turned out to be a very smart move. Her previous captor... Uh, discovered that she was in New York, and he and a, and a, and a relative showed up in Manhattan to demand her back. Um, her husband refused. Then they changed the demand. They said, right, if you're not going to give us get her back, give us $2,000 and we'll call it even. And so he went to his Tong, he went to the on An Tong, and said, now here's the situation. I did not acquire her directly from them. I got her um, from the mission. Do I still owe these guys $2,000? And the Anliangs ruled that he did not, and he didn't have to pay them anything. And that was Bocum's death warrant. What they decided was if they couldn't have her back, and they couldn't get money for her, they were going to kill her. And they killed her very, very brutally uh, one night uh, off of Mott Street, in a, in, a, in a rear building off of Mott Street. And there was a trial, and then that's really when, when the, the Anliangs and the four brothers went to war. And that war lasted, um, I want to say, about a year, 1909 to 1910, uh, before it was over. It turned out to be very, very hard to broker a peace agreement there because the Four Brothers was sort of split in two. Uh, there were different factions within the Four Brothers. Some of them wanted peace and some of them didn't.
0: Can I ask you how she was murdered?
1: Uh, stabbed and, and, and also cut up. And there was a lot of blood and a lot of knives. Um, uh, the, the, the scene was really, it was really a bloodbath.
0: Let's move to the Third Tong War. It revolves around a really interesting character named Charlie Boston which is a great moniker for a Chinese gangster. Who was he and how was he involved in the Third War?
1: Well, his name was Li Guan Zhang, actually, in Chinese. They called him Charlie Boston, essentially because he lived in Boston. Um, that's, where, that's where he got the nickname. Charlie Boston was a very senior Anliang figure. And he was particularly uh, valued by the Tong because he had a lot of money. And he was usually the guy they went to to bankroll bail money when a lot of An Lians got arrested. Charlie Boston was—he uh, was on the scene early in the 1890s, and he um, became associated with opium. And he was—he was running a couple of opium dens in New York. And the war broke out when the Feds raided these two opium uh, dens that he was—that he was operating. Initially, the Anlions suspected that it had been the four brothers who had ratted them out to the Feds, but then they realized no, it really wasn't them. That—that that war was over. This was the hip sings again. And the hip sings wanted in on the opium gang, uh, the opium uh, trade, and Charlie Boston had had, um, presumed to dictate the terms of entry for the Hipsings, and so they decided they would get him by going to the government. When they busted him, however, what was more interesting than the opium that they confiscated on the premises was was his archive of papers, and he had a lot of papers that led directly to and implicated police in various other cities in the United States. Charlie Boston had essentially built up a nationwide opium smuggling and distribution network, and he had a lot of allies in the police departments and in the immigration um, 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 uh, authorities uh, who were helping him do it and who were on the tape. And these, uh, it took them several days to get through these archives. Some of the records were in Chinese, some of them were in English. Charlie Boston initially pleaded uh, not guilty when they uh, brought him up for trial. But once it became clear that if the trial went on, the, the names of all of these contacts were going to be read aloud in court, and all sorts of people that the Amelians had compromised over the years who were involved in this opium trade were going to be publicly named. The Tong sat down with Charlie Boston and said, you need to take one for the team. So rather than have this come out into the public, uh, Charlie Boston pleaded, changed his plea, He pleaded guilty, and he went down to Atlanta and served in the penitentiary there for a couple of years before he came back. And, you know, speaking also of records, the, um, uh, I was able to get his entire file from uh, from the time he spent in Atlanta. I know who he wrote to. I have copies of some of the letters that he wrote. I mean, it was a real treasure trove of information, not just for the police 100 years ago, but for me today.
0: Now, just for perspective, these Chinese gangs we've been talking about all day, operating during the, the heyday of Tammany Hall, the Five Point gangs that we're all familiar with from gangs of New York... Uh, And then moving into the 20th century, there were other gangsters in New York City, like Monk Eastman, Dutch Schultz, Lucky Luciano.
1: That's right. And uh, Asbury does refer to some of the Chinese gangs in the gangs of New York. Uh, He doesn't go into a lot of detail, and he doesn't footnote, so it's really hard to know where he got his sources. But one of the things that was interesting, I was was always on the alert for any cross-pollination between the Chinese gangs and the Irish gangs or the Italian gangs or the Jewish gangs. And I found almost no evidence of it. Uh, The the Tong Wars really boiled down to Chinese-on-Chinese violence. And the only um, uh, non-Chinese who seemed to have been victims to it were people who just got in the way when when there was shooting going on. So it really existed by itself in its own world. The only time, actually, um, that the uh, Italian gangs were mentioned, it was kind of interesting, uh, in the teens, there was a uh, you, know, you know the, the weapons kind of evolved. They started out with meat cleavers and knives, and then they moved into guns and automatic weapons, and then eventually there were some bombings in Chinatown. And at one point, the Hipsings actually bombed An Lian headquarters. They infiltrated, they planted a bomb um, in the in what they called the Joss Hall, which was essentially the worship hall. But fortunately, it went off a half an hour early before the uh, worship service, so nobody was actually killed, but it really did a lot of damage to the building. And the, um, the, but the Hipsings and the Chinese generally were not thought to possess explosive technology. And so uh, the Amiens actually placed an ad in the English language newspapers asking for information about the bombing and anybody who had any, they, were, they offered a reward to, primarily because they believed that the Hipsings didn't know what they were doing. They must have hired some Italians to do it as far as the Amiens were concerned. But there was never anybody found who was uh, in fact involved in it. And one of the memoirs that I found um, written by one of the hip sings shortly before the wars were over. He uh, named a particular hip sing as the guy who had planted the bombs, um, which I think everybody um, since then has believed it has taken his gospel. But I was able to find out that the guy had actually died a couple of years before the bombing. So he clearly was not involved in the way that they said.
0: Am I correct in stating that the ong really got the short end of the stick when it, came to these violent encounters with the Hipsings. It seems like the most brutal attacks were done by the Hipsings against the Anliangs. Or or was it balanced with the Anliangs getting their revenge as well?
1: No, I, think it was, I think they kind of gave as good as they got, but they were somewhat different in their approach. The Anliangs uh, had a veneer of respectability. They considered themselves the Merchant Association, whereas the Hipsings were laborers, and frankly, more of them, I think, were thugs. And so the Amiens very often didn't do the shooting themselves. They would sometimes hire hit men to do it for them. The Hipsings did that too. Um, but uh, the Hipsings turned out to be, I think, a bit more ruthless. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the Amiens, um, uh, after Charlie Boston was arrested, the Amiens struck back by decapitating the Hipsing Tong. They uh, they found out uh, one night they brought a couple of shooters in, and they, they got the president and the vice president of the Tong, you know, who were both gambling in Duck's uh, gambling house, and, uh, and kill both of them in one fell swoop. So they, um, I, I I don't know, uh, you know, at one point I tried to do a necrology uh, that, uh, that was in the earlier draft of the book, of how many people died and who died at whose hands and stuff. But I gave it up because it was too difficult to figure it out. A lot of people died and it was never clear whether it was Tong related violence or not. So I can't really tell you as far as body count was concerned whether the hip sings got more of them than the Omnions. My
0: impression is
1: that they were fairly evenly matched during the, during the 30-something years that they fought.
0: So the Fourth Tong War seemed to be the, the most violent of them all and certainly lasted the longest and eventually spread far beyond New York. And it revolved around the defection of an An Leong named Chin Jack Lem. Can you describe how this war escalated and how it affected the rest of the country?
1: Well, Chin Jack Lim actually wasn't the New York figure at all. He was a senior Anlian. Um, he was actually the head of the Anlians in Chicago. And he also served for a time as the head of the national Anlian organization. Because by the twenties, um, both Tongs had national sort of umbrella groups. And they actually had conventions where they would bring in the chapters and, um, uh, and plan their activities and strategies for the year. Uh, Chin Jack Lim, however, was, um, um, Something of a dishonest figure, and his own tongue ejected him for malfeasance. I think he was on the take, and he was taking money that he wasn't to, he wasn't entitled to. So the Amleons ejected him, and the first thing he did was go across the street to the Hip Sings and say, "If you'll take me, I will bring in all of the um, the entire Amleon membership in Pittsburgh and Cleveland because they're loyal to me." which the Hipsings correctly recognized would essentially amount to be tantamount to the declaration of war with the Amiens if they took them. They didn't decide immediately. They waited until their annual meeting in Spokane, and then they took a vote, and the majority favored accepting them. And um, uh, once that became known, that's when the Fourth Tong War broke out. Uh, the, uh, The Fourth Tong War was probably the bloodiest. It lasted the longest, and it metastasized. It, it, didn't, it wasn't limited to New York. It, was, it, was, it went out to about a dozen different cities. There were hipsings and Anleons in all of those cities, and they clashed in all of them. And sometimes something would break out in Boston, and then the next day there was a death in Pittsburgh, and it was, in fact, related. Somebody had called up a cousin and said so-and-so was killed by the other Tong, and somebody would take revenge. This one was really hard to stop. And part of the reason was that the, um, the, uh, the generations had shifted. Uh, Tom Lee was dead by the late teens. He wasn't part of this, and the people who had taken his place and taken the place of some of the leaders in the hip sing tong were lesser men with less power. As the tongs had spread out into these other towns and other cities, uh, it became harder to control them. And it, and uh, and if something broke out in one place, it was like a brush fire. In the old days, if uh, uh, if the if the main guy in New York said stop the fighting, the fighting stopped. But it became clear that this was less and less possible as the Tongs decentralized and grew. And so part of the reason that these wars, that this particular war, the fourth one, kept breaking out and then stopping and starting again, went from 1924 to 1933, was simply the decentralization and the fact that these guys were lesser men than their predecessors and less able um, to bring things to a close.
0: How did the Tong Wars eventually end? And does the legacy of these tongs affect Chinese-Americans today?
1: Well, I'm, I can't really answer the last part of that question, because my research really ended in the 1930s. I did not take the tongs any further than that. Um, but I can tell you how the wars ended. And uh, it was a combination of factors, the most important of which was probably the Great Depression. Now, the Chinese weren't invested in equities. It wasn't like they all lost their shirts in the stock market crash. But it didn't take long um, for them to catch the disease from everybody else. And, by in fact, by 1930-31, something like 25% of the Chinese in the United States were out of work um, very, very quickly after the, the onset of the Depression. Unlike others, um, they did not go to the breadlines that were set up. In fact, there was even a breadline set up in Doyer Street, but only whites and blacks went there. The Chinese didn't patronize them. They went to their organizations. They went to their family circles, they went to their regional organizations, and they went to their tongs for help, for welfare and for food and for debt relief. And so the very first reason, I guess, that the tong wars started to peter out at this point was that the tongs were really strapped for cash. They had to support a lot of people they weren't used to supporting. The second factor actually was halfway around the world. 1931 was when the Japanese invaded China, and um, uh, there was a real need for relief in China. The Japanese had laid waste to parts of China. Uh, And um, the Chinese at home viewed the overseas Chinese as obvious sources of, of help because they were seen to be wealthier. So whatever money was not going to feed their own Tongmen in New York and in the other cities was going, was being sent back to China. So, so, the, so number one, we've got, uh, everybody is cash strapped. Number two, as I alluded to earlier, the, um, the population had changed. There were a lot more American-born Chinese among the Chinese in New York than there had been before. And that most of them weren't living in Chinatown anymore. There were about 8,000 Chinese in uh, New York in, ni- in, in the year 1930 and um, most of them were living in the boroughs or across the river in New Jersey or even in Connecticut. Um, So they weren't, um, Chinatown wasn't the pressure cooker that it had been before. Also, there was a little bit more assimilation, and there was just a little bit less need to belong to the tongs. So I think everybody was kind of exhausted. Everybody was spent. They were out of money. It was just easier to kind of get along with each other than it was to continue to do battle. And by 1933, it was all memory.
0: How did Tom Lee and Mock Duck die? Tom Lee
1: died in 19, I think it was 1917, if I'm not mistaken, and he died of natural causes. He was an old man. Actually, Mock Duck died of natural causes too, uh, much later, uh, after the Tong Wars were over. Uh, There's a mystery about Mock Duck's death. I found um, I found his grave. It's in a cemetery outside of New York City, Um, and um, he has a headstone which he shares with neither of the women that he, at one point or another, called his wives. He shares it with another man. Um, I can't even find a record that this man was a hip sing. Uh, He was a sailor of some sort, Um, and he was a divorcee. But why the two of them are buried together, I have no idea. I tried uh, in vain to get in touch with some of Mokduk's descendants when I was writing the book, but um, nobody seemed to want to talk to me. Um, So that's as far as I'm concerned, that one is a mystery.
0: Interesting. In your own personal experience from discussing and sharing your book, are are Chinese Americans familiar with the history of some of their ancestors here? Uh, How do they feel about it?
1: First of all, I don't think the people that I wrote about are necessarily ancestors of too many Chinese in the United States today. There's been a lot of immigration, and not a lot of Chinese can trace their ancestry back to people who were in the United States 100 years ago, although some can how do they feel about it? I think it's a mixed bag. I think there is a concern when anybody writes about the Tong Wars uh, that it's going to be sensationalized. Because almost everything that was written about, not just about the Tongs, just about the Chinese in, in America generally, up until maybe 30, 40 years ago, uh, really was sensationalized. That's what Americans wanted to read about Chinatown. That's where Fu Manchu and the Yellow Peril and all that stuff come from. So I think the first concern on the part of a lot of Chinese in the United States is whether this is simply going to be another book like that, where somebody is trying to profiteer and sensationalize what what had to happen in Chinatown. I was determined not to do that. As I said, this is my third book on the early Chinese experience, and I've written two books about Chinese-American heroes. I think exploring people who were less than savory is kind of part of the deal. It's They're all part of the same tapestry, um, uh, the, the Chinese in America, and I think if they're worthy of... Of, uh, of inquiry, and I made special effort not to buy into the stereotypes. Um, but I, think, uh, I I think uh, in in other cases, I think some of the Chinese are really glad that this is being done, and it's being done in some sort of an objective fashion, because I really was trying to set the record straight. I didn't have an axe to grind when I went into this. I will say that I was pretty sure there was more to the story than just bad, greedy men killing other bad, greedy men for money. And I wasn't disappointed. Um, I think the way the Chinese were treated in the United States and the, and the realities of Tammany Hall era in New York very much intruded into the story and was as responsible for what happened as, uh, as anything on the Chinese side. So I tried to apportion responsibility and blame where I thought it belonged. And, uh, of course, my work is only as good as uh, my sources, some of which were impeachable, some of which probably weren't.
0: I checked out Google Maps before this interview to see what Chinatown looks like today. And many of the, the buildings appear original to the days of the Tongs.
1: That's right. In fact, that was one of the most exciting things about it. I would get a hold of these photographs of Mott Street from 1900 and then go up to Google Maps and, and look at the buildings today, count the windows, look at, look at the shape of them and things like that. And almost all of the, the major the places where major events happened are still there. Uh, in fact, I did a separate article on it um, uh, that, that appeared on the web not too long ago. Sort of a virtual tour of Chinatown where you could see the sites where various uh, events in the Tong Wars occurred. It was really fun. Also, the other part of it was taking the 1900s um, pictures and blowing them up as, uh, as as large as I could and trying to read the store signs to make sure that I had the buildings correct. But the, it's just a, it kind of goes along with being a historian. Those are the those are the minor triumphs in the process.
0: It would be fun to go on a Tong war tour in Chinatown. New York City has, has plenty of other crime tours focused on the Italian and Irish gangster histories. So why not the, the Chinese gangsters?
1: Uh, the, uh, the, the Museum of Chinese in America, MOCA, which is uh, located on Center Street, just, uh, just outside of this triangle. Uh, they do actually daily tours of Chinatown. And I think they do uh, cover some of the sites that were important in the Tong wars, like, for example, the, the Chinese uh, theater. Street, that sort of thing. Some of those sites, I think, are on these tours.
0: So your book was just released last week. For listeners interested in knowing more about you and your book, where can they go to get it?
1: Yes, the best uh, the best place to go is tongwars.com, www.tongwars.com. Uh, if you want to buy the book, you can click through from there. Um, as of this morning, um, it's the uh, best-selling, uh, the number one and two of uh Amazon's um uh books on Asian American studies. Uh the reason it's one and two is one of them is the hardback and the other is the uh, the Kindle version. Uh tongworth.com if you want to read about me, uh Com. that's s e l i g m a n online.com.
0: Well, congratulations on that. And thank you so much for chatting with me today. Eric it's been a real pleasure this has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. Don't forget to like my Most Notorious page and leave a review or rating on iTunes if you have a spare moment. I'm Eric Rivenus, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.